once again, and welcome to episode 46 of Bee Boomer Unleashed, Why Gun Control Won't Stop Gun Violence, Part 5. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for this episode and all the episodes of Bee Boomer Unleashed. Before we get into today's discussion, let me remind you, as always, where you can find our podcast. You can find us at beeboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at Bee Boomer Unleashed. You can find us on iHeartRadio at b.boomerunleashed. And on Facebook, Spotify, Tumblr, and Instagram, you can find our link at bboomerunleashed. And on Twitter, you can find our link at bboomerunleash one And as always, we encourage you to drop us an email at bboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's bboomerunleashed at gmail.com. We always appreciate your emails, your comments, your criticisms, your suggestions for additional episodes of Be Boomer Unleashed. Before we get into uh, the discussion today, uh, this episode is going to be aired for the first time on Veterans Day, November the 11th, 2019. So for all of you veterans out there who are listening on this your special day, we thank you for your service. We appreciate the veterans, the sacrifices that they have have made throughout the years uh, for our freedoms. And it's you folks, you men and women, you brave men and women who give us the opportunity to still have some freedom of speech in this country, although it's uh, severely hampered as compared to what it used to be. But thank you to the veterans. Our hats off to you on this, your special day. And if you're listening to this after November 11th, we hope you had a great Veterans Day. Well, in today's episode why Gun Control Won't Stop Gun Violence, Part 5. I told you that uh, we would share a little bit about a report that was conducted in this soft discipline era that we talked about to try to tell you how we got to where we are today from boomer days to what we're looking at in public schools today. And as I've said many times before, is the if the last time you were in public school was the last time you're a student, you just wouldn't recognize the place. Well, this group a few years ago called Grad Nation in uh, conjunction with America's Promise Alliance uh, conducted a survey of several districts in Minnesota, and they published a report. Well, the rationale for their survey was pretty simple. They first say, why do we talk to young people? Community leaders and decision makers, they say, should go directly to the source, young people themselves, to understand what youth need to thrive. Now, you and I, back in baby boomer days, I can't ever remember being consulted on what I needed to thrive. Now, there are times, and I will be the first to say as a teacher, there are times that I consulted with students about how we would approach or digest a certain piece of curriculum that we were mandated by the state to cover in this particular grade level. And they came up with some pretty good ideas about how to do that. And I I don't see anything wrong with that. When you become a facilitator in the classroom and help students learn subject matter uh, that is relevant and meaningful to them in a relevant and meaningful way, rather than just stick their nose in a book and that's what it is. You uh, read this chapter and do the questions at the end of the chapter. There's more to teaching than that. But I can't 
ever remember as a student being asked, well, what do you want to learn in eighth grade? You know, there were people a whole lot smarter than me that knew what I needed to learn in eighth grade or ninth grade or tenth grade, and they were the ones who developed this. If it had been left to me, uh, what I would want to learn in the eighth grade, it would have probably been how to... uh, uh, rebuild a 350 Chevy engine. It certainly wouldn't have been reading, writing, and arithmetic. But sometimes we have to do things as we grow up and learn things that we really don't enjoy doing. Well, that's okay to involve students in curriculum decisions, not necessarily choosing what they learn but how they might go about learning it. But what this survey, it had nothing to do with curriculum uh, per se, and it had everything to do with discipline. So they had several steps to this. Step number one, identify young people to engage and consider the following things when they identify young people to speak with about school discipline. First of all, they wanted to engage young people who have experienced discipline. They wanted somebody that had been disciplined. Their lived experience gives them a fuller understanding of the current practices in place, the effects of those practices, and how those practices can be improved. While other young people may have a point of view about discipline, they might lack the context that experience provides. So in essence, they wanted to find troublemakers to interview about the discipline process. Well, if I'm a kid, if I'm a troublemaker, and all I do is get in trouble and disrupt class, and they're the ones that's asking me what that should be done, well, you know what I'm going to tell them? I'm going to tell them, well, you need to calm down a little bit. You need not to be so strict on discipline. You need not to suspend me when I punch some kid out or when I take my foot and smash their lunch uh, on the floor or when I take a... Uh, mashed potatoes and throw them across the cafeteria. There, there's got to be some different way of handling that. The good kids, those kids who comply with school rules and school policies, they're not going to be consulted on this because they've never experienced discipline. They might have an idea about it, these folks say, but let's interview the troublemakers. That's basically what this was all about, is interviewing the troublemakers. Their second step was to build trust. Uh, They were to build trust with these students uh, uh, during this research project. And the uh, report explores the experience of school discipline from the perspective of students and uses their insights as the basis for understanding how to improve school discipline policies and practices. They came up with this a report called Disciplined and Disconnected. Disciplined and Disconnected. There are three broad strategies for building trust. Caring adults need to address the power differential between young people and adults by demonstrating that they respect young people as the experts on youth experiences. These bleeding heart liberals who conducted this survey, they want to look at the kids as experts on youth experiences. Hey, Who's the parent here? Who's the teacher here? These kids are not experts in anything if they're troublemakers. Now, interview some good kids. They might be the experts on discipline because they know how to obey and comply with school policies. But they're interviewing a bunch of troublemakers trying to get them 
to tell them how this discipline policy should should work, and they're going to build trust with them by letting them be the experts. Caring adults must be transparent about why the conversation is taking place and how the learnings will be ultimately used. In other words, kid, come on, let's talk. We know you've had a tough time, and, and you've been suspended, and you've been probably... Uh, harassed or bullied by the school administration, and and we want this to improve. So that's why we're doing this, and we want you to, we want you to help us in this, so we can teach these adults what you really need. And then caring adults must ensure confidentiality. Uh, they've got to be, uh, hold all this in strictest confidence. Young people may be unwilling to share their honest insights if their responses are not kept in confidence. If trusting relationships do not already exist, especially when having group conversations, they say, with young people who do not already know one another, caring adults can use icebreaker activities, warm-up activities, group count, big wind blows, open questions and answers. Give me a break. You know, these po- folks are have gotten their nose in the cloud somewhere. They're looking at their world through rose-colored glasses. The people that were conducting this survey were probably folks that either didn't have any children or their children were already too far gone to be rescued. They uh, wanted to establish this rapport with the kids. They wanted the kids to be the expert. The third step that they come up with is ask the right questions. Ask the right questions once trust is established. There are two broad questions to ask. These questions alone may lead to half an hour or more of discussion when engaging an individual young person or as much as an hour or more of discussion when engaging a group. And here are the questions. What are your experiences with school discipline? Now, remember, they're interviewing troublemakers. They're interviewing troublemakers, not the good kids. They're interviewing the troublemakers. What are your experiences with school discipline? Tell me about a time or times when you got in trouble at school. Tell me about that so I can pat you and console you and tell you that the big bad principal and the school administrator was too strict. Tell me about that. And what influenced what influenced your experience of being disciplined at school? Whether it was specific people, your specific school or program, or other factors. Follow-up questions might include questions like this. How does your school work to resolve these conflicts? Who do you go to when you're having a problem at home or in your personal life? How about a problem at school in particular? How well does your school's discipline process work? What, if anything, should be done to improve it? Who are the major players in the discipline process, and what do they do? You know, I'm sorry, folks, but, you know, disciplined and disconnected, these folks are disconnected with reality. They're disconnected with reality. I remember one time I had this guy who was a college professor, and I was an assistant principal already at the time, and I was taking some additional graduate studies, and I was taking a class called uh, Advanced Human Development. And this guy went through undergrad, got a degree in psychology, got a master's in psychology, and then got a Ph.D. in psychology and never once spent a day in public school, but he was teaching public school administrators how the discipline process ought to work and how you should take care of these kids. And I told him one day, I said, look, Doc, I said, you don't, you don't have a clue what's going on out there in the schools. 
Did you ever teach? Did you were you ever a school ministry? Well, no, no. You know, I've you know had this education in 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 college and went right into teaching at college. And I said, if you could shadow me for a day, and that time at that time I was an assistant principal and was in charge of the school discipline. I said, if you could chat me for a day, I said, you might understand a little bit about what goes on in a middle school. And he said, could, could I do that? And I said, well, sure. And he said, well, what time should I be there? I said, well, my day starts about six in the morning. I get there early and get things ready and get on bus duty. And while the kids are coming in, I make sure that they're, everybody's in their place and everybody's safe. And I do, oh, well, that's just a little bit too early for me. I said, oh, really? Well, what time would you like to come? He said, well, how about I come about 9 o'clock? I said, well, I've got about a half a day in by that time, but uh, sure, come on by at 9 o'clock. So he came at 9 o'clock, and he watched me deal with discipline problems, with bullying problems, with all kinds of student difficulties. I visited, uh, he went on tagged along when I went in a classroom to try to take care of some problems in there. And then I said, well, come on, we're going to the cafeteria to do lunch duty. Oh, you mean you're not going out for lunch? No, no. We're going over here to the cafeteria. We have three lunch periods, and we're going to be on duty on all three of those lunch periods, and we'll grab a bite to eat while we're supervising the students here in the cafeteria. So we ate the school lunch there that day, and uh, he uh, uh, was just mystified by all the things that were going on simultaneously and all the drama that was occurring even in the school cafeteria. After lunch, he came to me and he said, I don't know how you do it. He said, I'm worn out. I said, worn out? We haven't even, we've still got the afternoon to go through here. He said, I I just don't think I can do it. He said, I just don't think I can make it. So he left and went back to his little cloister down there at the the college campus. Well, his attitude changed a little bit, and he decided he didn't know everything there was to know about the development, the human development of a middle schooler. Who understands middle schoolers anyway? But it was a good eye-opener for him. But these are the kinds of people who are out there doing this study. Step number four, they said, listen, when young people take time and energy to share their experiences. In some cases, making themselves vulnerable in the process of sharing. And we as caring adults need to listen. You know, I'm all about listening to kids. Uh, You know, and, and I've listened to many, many kids over the years. Kids that have been to my office for discipline issues, kids that have been to my office for personal problems, um, they were having a problem at home. And sure, I listen to kids, but sometimes you just got to get down to the business of school discipline. And if a kid breaks the rules, there has to be a punishment that's afforded to that child. Step number five, they say document and apply what you learn. It's, Im- it's important to capture the moment. Oh yeah, it's important to capture that moment and why they want why did they want to do that? So that by having that record, they could learn with young people and they could learn from those young people. And a range of practitioners and decision makers could use this valuable information from these troublemakers to improve their discipline policy. With permission, document young people's insights about discipline and the impact it has on their lives. So that study 
was done uh, with uh, Midland High School students in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, Chicago who had experienced discipline and, in particular, exclusionary discipline. The center also conducted key informant interviews with Minnesota school administrators implementing non-exclusionary practices. So the, 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 the rationale for this whole study was to get information from the troublemaking kids on how we should improve our discipline policy. Well, what do you think came out of that? What do you think came out of that? Well, you're suspending kids too much. You're, you're, you know, you need to listen to them. You need to understand about that. Because when you suspend a student from school, the rationale that they provide, they say, well, there's worse academic performance, lower levels of school engagement, greater chance of leaving school before graduating, increased likelihood of future involvement with the criminal justice system, and higher levels of school violence and antisocial behavior. So if we just coddle these troublemakers and we don't suspend them and we underreport or don't report at all or don't send them to court for incorrigibility, then they're going to respect that and, oh, my, things are going to be just hunky-dory and it's just going to be a wonderful, wonderful time that we have with those kids and how they're able to assist us in making our discipline policy just more user-friendly, so to speak. The report says exclusion interrupts learning. Well, yeah, it does. It interrupts learning. These folks that are excluded from classroom because of disciplinary activity It certainly interrupts their learning, but guess what? While they're there in that classroom doing all the crazy stuff that they do, they're interrupting learning for the other students. So what about the good kids? What about the good kids that are sitting there and they want to learn? Their learning is interrupted every day by these knuckleheads, by these bullies who are out creating and wreaking havoc in the hallway. And so this exclusion interrupts learning, they say. And then, of course, students need to feel valued, welcoming, and connected. Let me tell you something. You as a student, a student, your children and grandchildren as students will feel valued, welcomed, and connected if they obey the school rules. If they disobey the school rules, they're going to feel unwelcome and disconnected. That's what they're going to feel because they're the ones who choose to act that way. Now, I'm all about proactive measures of preventing discipline issues before they happen. I am not in favor, have never been in favor, and will never, ever be in favor of soft discipline policies just to make the numbers look better. And that's what it's all about. This this report says we need to move away from exclusion. Don't kick these kids out of school. Let's move away from that. Let's make student learning the ultimate goal, they say. Let's make student learning the ultimate goal, and it should be the ultimate goal. But good kids who want to obey the rules can't learn while these other knuckleheads are creating havoc in the classroom. That's the problem. Interpret student behavior as a communication of needs. Oh, he's acting out or she's acting out because they have a need. They have a problem and they're just crying out for help. Seriously? Build trusting relationships. And I'm all about building trusting relationships with kids. But it's a two-way street. You don't build a trusting relationship with a kid by ignoring his or her bad behavior. 
You don't do it that way. Positive relationships, they say, allow school staff to meet the individual needs of students, and I'll agree with that 100%, but we can't get soft on discipline. Share the power. (laughs) Share the power. Implementing non-exclusionary practices often involves establishing shared power between members of the school, especially the students. So we're going to let the kid decide what his or her discipline should be. Well, that's uh, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Implications. They say this can ultimately shape how connected young people feel toward the school and toward the adults in the school and their education overall. Let me tell you, regardless of how soft you can be on discipline, and no matter how much you coddle and pamper these troublemaking children, they are still going to make trouble. They're still going to make trouble. I think we sacrifice a few for the education of many. You know, we don't need these troublemakers creating havoc. We don't need to have these troublemakers calling the shots and making life miserable for the other students. As evidenced in the book with that I told you about that Andrew Pollock wrote, Why Meadow Died, this kid should have been in the system. This this murderer should have been in the system because of the crimes he committed, not only in the community, but also at, at, at school. And because of the lax discipline policy, kids died. People died as a result of that lax discipline policy. They say we ought to invest in research to determine effective non-exclusionary discipline policies. Well, you can't paddle kids anymore. You can't do as the nuns used to do in Catholic school, whack you on the back of the hand with a ruler. You can't do that. You can't make a student stand in the corner. That will uh, certainly dissolve their self-esteem. You can't draw a circle on the blackboard and have them put their nose in it. You can't uh, do any. So so what, what are the options? The only option that the liberals have left the school system in way of discipline is exclusion. And that's not the best way. That's not the best thing. I'll be the first to admit that, but you know what? It prevents the other students from being damaged by these kids who have no desire to learn and that all that they want to do is disrupt class. And if you get some of these troublemakers in the system, maybe get them a probation officer because of their incorrigible behavior, behavior or or that you get them in in some kind of after school program to enhance their behavior then maybe you're helping somebody but just to ignore their crimes as i said last week you know if you legalize heroin if you legalize heroin we don't have a drug problem anymore do we you've still got a bunch of junkies laying around on the street you know, Huntington, West Virginia is the heroin capital of the East Coast. What a what a, a cesspool of humanity in Huntington, West Virginia. They call them the backpack people. You know, I saw an article the other day uh, that it's okay now in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, and some of these other places for these homeless people to defecate on the sidewalk. That's what that's what soft discipline has done, folks. That's what soft discipline has done, that and, and a lot of other liberal programs that are too numerous to mention at this time. But, folks, this 
This soft discipline policy provide opportunities for students to make academic process and instead of being excluded, limit subjectivity or inconsistency in discipline decisions, ensure that students know the school rules and their own rights. Well, let me tell you, they might not know the rules, but they know their rights. Trust me, they know their rights. I dealt with that stuff, folks. And it's, it's, it's just not much fun anymore to be a school teacher or a school administrator. And we wonder why people are leaving that profession. We wonder why parents are crying for school choice. We wonder why we have such a rise in charter schools and private schools and internet schools and home schools. Well, folks, wonder no longer. It's the soft discipline policy. And folks, you know, if you think it's not like this in your school, in your community, or right here in Cabell County, just ask some of the teachers that you know. Everybody knows a teacher or a school principal somewhere. Just call them up. Stop by and see them and ask them how the current discipline policy is working for them in Cabell County or Wayne County or Putnam County or Cuyahoga County in Ohio, wherever you might be from. Listen listen to a teacher. Listen to a school administrator and let them tell you how they're allowed or if they're allowed to discipline students in their school. And you'll find that everyone has some form of this soft discipline policy in place. And you know what this soft discipline policy does? It gets people killed. It gets students killed. It gets them injured. It gets them bullied. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Folks, I was a school administrator for nearly 30 years, and it's it's in this soft discipline that we lose children along the way. And good kids get bullied. Good kids get beat up. Good kids get hurt. Good kids, you know, can't learn. And their education is stifled by these disobedient, disrespectful students who are mollycoddled by this soft discipline policy. And, oh, we even changed changed the name of our alternative school which is a, uh, a program where students are expelled or disciplined and excluded from school. They're just too mean to be in school, and we put them in this alternative school, and that's been a good name for it. Well, guess what? We recently changed the name of that school to Crossroads Academy. Crossroads Academy, that sounds much better than alternative school, doesn't it? We're going to put a we're going to wrap it up in a nice package and put a nice pretty bow on it and we're going to call it Crossroads Academy instead of the alternative school. It doesn't change a thing, doesn't change a thing. And basically what you've got is the inmates running the asylum. And that's what these soft discipline people want to happen. You want the knotheads, you want the troublemakers, you want the rebellious kids. They're the ones that are in charge of this school. And you talk to some teachers. That's your homework assignment. Talk to some teachers this week in whatever county you happen to be in, whether it's West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Oregon, uh, Washington, Florida, wherever you might be. You talk to a teacher or a school administrator this week, and you Ask them about their discipline policy, and you'll see nationwide this soft discipline policy is pervasive in our public schools today, and it's causing our students to be less and less safe. 
and there's more and more danger involved to these kids. Wow. Well, I've, I've gone over 25 minutes today, didn't I? I went just a little bit longer, so, you know, if I was too long-winded, I apologize. This week, I'm going to have the privilege this week coming up of interviewing Andrew Pollock, who wrote the book, Why Meadow Died, the father of this lovely young lady who was murdered by this kid who fell through the cracks of this soft discipline. And we're looking forward to talking to him. And if you haven't read the book yet, get it, Why Meadow Died, and you'll enjoy it. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have today, and uh, we appreciate you coming by. Hopefully you've gleaned a few things from this uh, rambling today, and hopefully you'll tune in next week uh, because next week uh, hopefully we'll have the interview up with uh, Andrew Pollock, who wrote Why Meadow Died. Well, listen, have a great week, and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye.